Our scripture for today is Genesis 26, 1 through 11. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of, this, of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's have a seat. Let's pray real quick. Father, this morning we come to you, God, knowing that we are utterly dependent upon you in every way. We need you, we need your grace, we need your kindness. So Father, would you come this morning, give us your help, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been in a situation where there were two options for something that uh, you were gonna do? Uh, Then your preferred option gets taken away for some reason, but you discover after doing the thing and the option in the way that like you didn't really want to do, that that way was actually better than the way that you had initially wanted. Well, we moved into a new house a couple years ago, and uh, it's been a long process kind of getting settled. We moved in relatively quickly in our um, kitchen, our bedrooms, our living spaces. They were all put together rather quickly. But there's one space that's my responsibility uh, that has taken a while, and that's the garage. Uh, I'd done some organization, but definitely uh, it was still in need of some attention. Well. Occasionally, Amanda, my wife, who's uh, serving with the children this morning, uh, she gets on a kick to help me with some of the open loops that I've got in my life, Um, things that need to be done but just aren't taking a priority for some reason or another, and they just kind of spin waiting for me to deal with them. So this spring, she asked me if we could dedicate a Saturday to solving all the problems of the garage. Now, I was a little bit apprehensive about her eagerness to help me uh, in this, but I knew it was a good idea. It had to be done. Uh, so I wanted, I wanted my garage in order. I mean, who doesn't, right? Um, and as the day got closer, I, I bought organizational systems. I had uh, a, a new shelf that we could put things on, um, some extra storage. Well, the day, the day came. 
It was the Saturday for our garage cleaning. And I had a couple things I had to do in my office in the morning. And so I got going on that while Amanda, who was ready to go, ready to tackle the garage, went right out and got started. So it didn't take me that long to deal with the things in my office. So just a few minutes. Um, but before I was able to get out there, um, I realized, and really kind of just like about the time that I was getting ready to open the door, I remembered that Amanda's family has a different way of cleaning garages than my family. I mean, my family that I came from, I, like we, we didn't even really necessarily clean the garage that often. Um, but Amanda's family, they clean the garage like every year, like fully clean it, and maybe even a couple times a year. And so um, the way that Amanda's family does this is that they, the first thing they do, they go into the garage and then they take all the stuff and move it onto the driveway, all of it, which is not the way that I do things. I was not really uh, excited about this. It's not, internally I was planning for something different, you know, like I'm thinking more efficient. I'm like, well, I'm gonna pick this thing up and I'm gonna put it where it goes so I don't have to handle it twice, but that's not how, how things work. So as I walked into the garage, all kinds of emotions set in, right? The first emotion that I um, experienced was anxiety. Uh, because what if we couldn't get it all done that day? We just moved all this stuff out onto the driveway. And like, it's just going to sit overnight? Or am I going to be up till like two in the morning trying to put things back? So anxiety. The next thing was anger. I was not happy. I, I was mad that she had done, in my mind, this was like, she had done the easy part. She had taken everything and like, throwing it out. And my part now was to put it back, which is a much harder um, situation. But my biggest emotion was fear. You know, most of the organizing work was kind of up to me. Um, and I knew, I feared that she would get bored and frustrated because to be honest, I can be painfully slow and methodical when it comes to organizing and putting things where they go. And patience isn't um, Amanda's strong suit uh, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. So I kind of expected that, okay, she's doing this and then she's gonna get bored with what I'm doing and she's gonna move on and I'm gonna be stuck for 14 hours putting the garage back together by myself. So I was not happy. In fact, midway through, I sat down in the middle of all this stuff that looks like we're having a garage sale uh, out, on the, out on our driveway. In fact, we had a couple people stop by and say, is this stuff for sale? I'm like, no, we're cleaning your garage. But I sat down in the middle of all this stuff and I put my head in my hands and no, I didn't cry. I might've been crying on the inside, but I felt like crying. And well, to make a long story short, Amanda recognized this. She came over, we had a good heart to heart conversation and we attacked the driveway together. And by the end of the day, the driveway was empty. The garage was neat, clean, and organized. And it actually happened so quickly that we had time to go on a date after that. And we still were friends, still liked each other. Now, though the initial process had me all tied up in knots, uh, she actually, by the end, convinced me that her way was better. You know, they do do it every year, maybe twice a year. So they must know something about it. Now, I tell you this story really just kind of with one point. And that point is this, that there's often more than one way to get to a goal, but it is also often the case that there is a way that is better than that other way. 
You know, as I reflected uh, on that day in the garage, you know, I think something similar can happen in my relationship to God. I identify a problem in my world that causes me stress or internal discomfort or fear. And so I try to solve the problem. I develop a plan. And unfortunately, I don't always consider that God might actually already have a plan for solving my problem. And that rather than me trying to find a new way, a new path, and to get there, I should maybe just consider pressing into the path that he has already laid out for me. You know, recently, I've seen this uh, in my trash hauling business that I own. So I'm a small business owner. Uh, I do construction, demolition, dumpsters. And, you know, there are a lot of great things about owning a business. I like being a business owner. But those positives also come with a significant amount of risk. And risk potentially means a lot of fear. My business seems stable. However, I worry about my driver getting in an accident. Or if a dumpster falls off the truck and hurts someone. I worry about one wrong action causing me to lose my entire business, the thing that I've worked so hard for. You know, a few weeks ago, A few weeks ago, I had a truck catch fire. And it was bad enough that the whole cab just burned to the ground. And it it was gone. And I only have two trucks, so like, that went from, that means that like half of my workforce was gone now. And I had to figure out ways to solve that problem. You know, no one was hurt, but my biggest fears about, my my biggest fears um, have been, for the last few weeks, have been, is the insurance actually gonna like, give me money to buy a new truck. Like that's a, that was a real concern for me. And would I lose all my com- customers before I got my new truck? So some of these fears are probably irrational, but for me, they felt really real. You know, when I'm afraid, when I have fear, I have to be very careful about my decision-making because it's in these moments that I'm most tempted to run and hide or cheat a little, lie a little. And I have to remind myself to trust God's plan, to remember his promises, promise that give me hope and comfort in my distress. Because if I don't, I can be tempted to try and solve my problems in ways that lack integrity, that really don't glorify God or or demonstrate uh, who Jesus is to the world. I'm tempted to create a new path to go away that God didn't design for us to go. You know, I think we've, we all face those kind of temptations. On the surface, they are temptations to be dishonest or a temptation to maybe pursue a temporary pleasure at the expense of something more long-term or a temptation to focus on ourselves rather than considering the needs of others. You know, maybe in your job, your employer gives you something to do you're supposed to do consistently, regularly, and you don't do it, but he asks you if you do it, and he says, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do it. You know, a little lie. Because what they don't know won't hurt them, right? Or maybe you're a kid, and you've got screen time, um, screen time limits on your phone or your, or your tablet, and you've figured out a way to get around that. Now, the right thing to do in that situation, kids, is to tell your parents. They set the limit, they're there for a purpose, and 
You should maybe tell them. Or you should not cross those limits, even though you would, uh, even though you would maybe like to. But that's not happens a lot of, what happens a lot of times. You want more time, so you deceive, you're a little bit deceitful and you try and hide it. So in our moments of stress, we say, God, you say not to lie, but it's really going to be better for me if I'm a little dishonest here. Or God, you say that I should follow my husband, but I just don't like where he's leading. Or God, you say that I should serve my wife, laying my life down the way that Jesus did for the church, but she never notices it when I do, so I'm just going to do what I want. Or God, I know that we should give to church and help the poor, but I really like my Netflix subscription. God, I know you say that it's not good for me to give up gathering with other believers, but it's just not convenient for me to go to church. You see, God has a route, a, a path planned for us in our everyday and in the face of adversity. And it doesn't involve us leaving our integrity at the door. What it does involve is admitting our weaknesses and then trusting him and trusting his promises for what we need. Even though internally we have reasons to think our way is better or easier or faster, leaving God's path to make our own way is not just a matter of disobedience, but it's a lack of faith. And when you identify it, it's an opportunity for us to grow in the right kind of godliness. You know, God has a lot to say about, about this. That's, that's what his word is for. That's why we look at scripture. 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. It's what we're doing here, for rebuking. That's correcting, for pointing out the things that maybe we've strayed a little bit. That's what his word is for. And not just to show us the path, but also to help us understand how that path actually allows us to achieve our dreams, our hopes, better than the paths that we come up with in our own lives or the paths that are prescribed for us by outside forces. So today we're in Genesis 26, looking at a story in the life of Isaac. We've been in Genesis now for a while. And like us, Isaac has a fear. And though he has heard the promises of God, his fear causes him to set a plan that is actually very foolish. In the moment, it seems like a good plan. In fact, it, it's a plan that his father Abraham even modeled for him. He did it a couple times. However, in reality, it was selfish, shameful, irresponsible, dangerous, and ultimately very unloving to his wife, especially. But despite Isaac's weakness, God is patient and persistent with Isaac so that his failure does not end in ultimate failure or ruin. Now, this is important, so I want to summarize what I'm going to say in, in three points, and we're going to put them up on the screen. And I want you to see them in the passage as we're going, but let me just read them real quick. Number one, God's promises are there for his people to trust in when they are afraid. Are we going to get it up? Number two, or I'll, re I'll just say it again, God's promises are there for his people to trust him when, they're, when you're afraid. Number two, misplaced fear leads to foolishness and failure. Misplaced fear leads to foolishness 
and failure. Number three, God is patient and persistent so that failures do not lead to ultimate ruin. God is patient and persistent so that failures do not lead to ultimate ruin. If you didn't get those written down, um, yeah, they're up there, but we'll, we'll put them back up in a little bit. But I, for now, I'd like to just jump right into the text and let's see this there. Chapter 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Now, if you've been consistently here over the last uh, few weeks or perhaps listening online, some of this should sound a little familiar, familiar because this is something that happened to Abraham. You know, in this story, the author, Moses, is actually making that point. He's talking about the life of Isaac, but he's making it clear that Isaac is walking in the footsteps of Abraham, like father, like son. The situations are not exactly the same in every detail, but it's close enough that the reader should immediately be recalling the story of Abraham if you were just like sitting down and reading it. You know, Abraham had encounters with God, and in, the, in this passage, so does Isaac. God appears to Isaac and has some specific instructions and some specific promises for him. Also, he mentions two locations, Egypt and Gerar. Now, in Abraham's day, there was a famine, just like with Isaac, and he traveled to Egypt. But here, Isaac is told, don't go to Egypt. Abraham also spent time in Gerar with King Abimelech. Now, these two places are important because in both of these situations, Egypt and Gerar, Abraham had gone into these cities and told Sarah to tell everyone that she was his sister. You know, in both situations, it almost turned out disastrous. He was afraid that they were going to kill him. And so he said, just tell me you're my sister so that I'll be safe. Now, though Abraham was clearly a man of deep, committed faith, he was also a man of failure. He had weakness. His, he was subject to fear as his weakness. In the life of Abraham, this weakness was actually a bit of a mark of shame. His, in his fear, he made a really foolish decision that put his whole family in jeopardy and potentially even endangered the promise that God had made to him. In both scenarios, though, God showed up miraculously he rebukes the kings who had taken Sarah into their houses, telling them to give Sarah back to Abraham because she belongs to him. She is his wife. God rescued them, rescued them in the midst of failure. So here Isaac now also is traveling to Gerar and interacts with dot, 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 Abimelech, the same king. So let's keep reading and hear what God has to say to Isaac um, as he has appeared to him. Verse 3, he says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You know, God gave Isaac one thing to do. He said, sojourn in this land. Don't go back to Egypt. And he reiterates, then he reiterates these promises that he had made to Abraham. Abraham's gone. And now these promises that God had made to Abraham are now living out through Isaac. It's a promise for massive amounts of offspring, massive and uh, a land, and it's that he would be blessed and that he would be a blessing to all the nations. So that was given to Abraham, but now it's being passed down through Isaac. And he says that because Abraham had oriented his life around God's voice, because he had obeyed what God called him to do, that the whole earth would be blessed through Isaac's offspring. So we're seeing Abraham was both a man of faith and a man of weakness. God was telling him that he had a plan in the world. It was a plan that was bigger and better than any of these men could possibly imagine. You know, God's promises are extremely important. Learning to recognize God's promises and trust in them is pivotal to walking a path of faithfulness with God. God's promises are there for us to trust in. Now, why does God make promises? Specifically, why did God share these promises with Isaac? I think there are three reasons. Number one, you know when you play, um, when you're playing pool, it's down to the eight ball, and you say eight ball corner pocket. You do that to demonstrate that you're not just making this on accident. God was calling his shot. He wanted to demonstrate his incredible power, his absolute wisdom, and his goodness in the universe. By calling his shot, he shows that what he's doing is not an accident when it comes to pass. God accomplished it. And it happens after, over generations and generations and generations. God has a persistent passion to display his glory in the universe, how great he is in the universe. This is part of that plan. Number two, I think it's an invitation for Isaac to cooperate with God's goals and to actively participate in the journey to get there. God was inviting Isaac to trust him where he had called him to go and to obey him in every moment along the way. He even used Abraham as that example. Then number three, it was an invitation for Isaac to rest in God's plan. God had set a destination for Isaac that was very good. His life would be one of ultimate purpose, important in God's plan. And the best part is that it wasn't up to him to make it happen. God was gonna make it happen. And so he could rest in the midst of God's working. So before we get into what Isaac did, it's important to remember that God promised good things to Isaac. Isaac, operating in full trust of God's promises that he had just made to him, that he had just spoken to him, should have really nothing to be afraid of. God is on his side. So he should make wise decisions because he trusts that God's good and a kind designer with a great plan and the power to make it happen. The path is laid out. It's clear. Verse six. 
So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Isaac, what are you doing? No. Isaac was doing the same thing that Abraham did. Isaac's fear, this weakness for fear that he's, that is the same as his father, had led him into a foolish decision. Isaac told people that Rebekah was his sister. Out of fear, Isaac is avoiding the path of God's good design to walk down a different path, a path of lies, deceit. He's in essence saying, God, I've got a better plan than you. I'm, I'm pretty stressed out about this. I'm just not sure about your plan. I'm going to go, I'm going to go this way. It's not going to affect anything. Had he forgotten the promises of God already? Verse eight, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to, done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So it says after they had been there a long time. They were hiding this deception for a long time before they got caught. This was not a short season of lies. This was a long one. Abimelech looks out his window and he sees Isaac and Rebekah, quote, laughing together. And just to clarify, the laughter that they're talking about is not like the way that we would all laugh together. It's an expression of intimacy reserved only for a husband and wife. It's something that clearly says, that's not his sister. That's definitely his wife. Abimelech had caught them in their lie. You know, sometimes God sovereignly uh, does this with us. God sovereignly allowed Abimelech to see them. And it actually saved Rebecca a lot of pain and hardship, a lot of suffering from uh, abuse or being taken. Abimelech seeing this, catching them, was actually God's kindness. And you know, he does that with us sometimes. He does that with his people. That it's his, and this, in this moment, it's his kindness and patience that's being experienced. Getting caught is not the punishment. God sovereignly steps in before a disaster so that his children have opportunity to turn from their error and change direction. So Abimelech then points out the foolishness of Isaac in the story. He says that someone could have lain with Rebekah and brought guilt on the community. I would guess that Abimelech is thinking about his experience with Abraham and Sarah where God came to him in a dream and said, Abimelech, I'm going to kill you if you don't give Sarah back. You know, what Isaac did was wrong. Though he seemed to love his wife in one sense, because obviously they were like laughing together, whatever that means. But his love did not extend to her protection. He had been selfish, thinking of his own safety before hers. He was fearful for himself first. 
And thus he made a foolish mistake. You know, God gave Isaac promises. But Isaac was fearful and therefore foolish. God, in allowing Abimelech to catch them, was again beckoning Isaac to believe his promises. He had succumbed to weaknesses, fears, and failures of his father. But God was patient with him and sovereignly allowed his error to be exposed before it was detrimental to Isaac's place in God's plan through this man, Abimelech. Isaac is again invited to trust in God's good plan. So to review, I think there are three points that God has for us in this passage. First, his promises are there for us to remember and trust when we are afraid. God reiterates them and gives, us to, gives them to us as gifts that we can be faithful to him as we're waiting for final resolution of the problems in our life. They're there to keep us from steering our own path, to stay on the path. You know, Isaac should have looked to God's promise to give him comfort, to keep him walking on the path of integrity and faithfulness before God. And the second thing is misplaced fear leads to foolishness and failure, which I think we can see that. Isaac made the same foolish mistake that Abraham made because he was afraid. They were afraid of someone, that someone might kill them to take their wife. And you know, we do the same thing, right? We stray from the path because we're afraid that the path that maybe God has laid out for us actually is going to lead us to ruin. And that's actually the opposite. It's the path that saves us from ruin. Third, God is patient and persistent so that failures do not lead to ultimate ruin. It's only because God is merciful that our failures don't ruin us. God rescues us at our deepest lows before the ultimate disaster arrives. Being caught in our sin or experiencing a terrible toll for our sin is actually a mercy of God, which he intends to lead us to repentance and to fresh faith in him. I was listening to a song this, song this morning that reminded me of, of, of this, that God strikes down to bind up. In the New Testament, this is, this, this is sometimes referred to as the discipline of the Lord. But what about you? Where are you walking a path that God's uh, not set for you? Or you've cut your own path? You know, maybe you feel like Isaac. You've heard God's promises. You've responded to God, but at time, your fear gets the best of you. You're afraid you won't have enough when you need it. Or you're afraid of what others might think or do to you if you were completely honest about yourself. My friend, the promises are abundant and they're for you. Learn them. Know the promises of God. Rehearse them. Share them with your family, with your friends. Use them to encourage. Rely on them. You know, others of you think you're past the point of that kind of pre-decision fear. You've actually kind of already made your decision. Your poor decisions have landed you into a cycle that's really far off of God's path. And it has its claws in you. Like Isaac and Rebecca, you've been there a long time. 
In fact, you've discovered that your plan actually is bad, but you're stuck and you can't find your way back. It feels like you're in a whirlpool. Your biggest fear now is that there's actually no way back and that you're lost forever. I think God's message to you this morning is it's not too late. It's not too late. The fact that you're in this room this morning, you're hearing my voice, means that you're not too far gone. Come, return to Jesus. Trust freshly in his promises. Whatever the case, the message of the gospel beckons us. It beckons us all to trust freshly in this persistent and patient God who cares. He cares for you. Trust in him. He makes promises for you to rely on. We see this in the message of the gospel, which is this, that we, like Isaac, all of us, though we may have heard the promises of God, have all gone our own way. All of us. Isaiah said, we all like sheep have gone astray. All of us. Each of us has turned to his own way. We've all made our own path. And Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. These wrong actions, sin, the Bible says it actually sets us on a path that none of us can get off of without outside help. It causes us to be spiritually dead. If you can imagine, there's like two sets of train tracks. You take one, it leads to one side of the chasm. On the other, you have leading to the other side of the chasm. So you've got a chasm separating two train tracks. You get on this one, you're headed the wrong direction. Every variance, wrong direction is us heading on that path. But the good news is, is that there is outside help. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, came to rescue us in our weakness and in our cycles of fear and distress. And he did that in this way, by becoming our substitute. For you, Jesus came and lived a life of ultimate and perfect obedience to God. In other words, he saw the destination, he saw God's plan, and he walked it perfectly. He didn't even stray once. And for you, because of God's great love, Jesus himself laid down his life, and his life covered the, the distance between your path and his perfect path. He died the death that you deserved. In a miraculous way, if you put your faith in Jesus, your mistakes and wandering have been forgiven and you immediately have access to God. You're invited to come into the presence of God through Jesus. No matter where you're at today, whether you're veering off the path looks like a lie or gossip or maybe greed or anxiety, pride or addiction, God is calling you to admit that you've strayed. Recognize that even the slightest little bit that you've gone off the path is not part of his good design. 
And you can trust the arms, that the arms of Jesus are not too short to rescue you. He can bridge that chasm. Jesus is God's patience and persistence in human form. He's shown up to rescue. And if you trust in him, his forgiveness is there for you. The good news about Jesus is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we come to the table this morning. Because we have all strayed off God's path and we, honestly, we keep straying. We have a tendency to stray. And this meal was given to his people as a place that we can freshly remember the message of the gospel. That Christ's body was broken for us. That's why we tear the bread. Christ's blood was poured out for us. That's why we have juice or wine, a red liquid. It's there to remind us it's a picture of the gospel. And this isn't, you know, being baptized is a one-time ordinance, but communion is one that we practice regularly. Jesus commanded us that we do it that way. Because the power to stay on the path comes as we continue to trust in Jesus with all our heart. This meal is given to us where we can freshly meet Jesus together and be filled with spiritual food, not just physical food, spiritual food. So if you recognize that Jesus is the great rescuer and the king that we've been waiting for, that we need. And if you surrendered your life to him, then this message, this meal, this meal is for you. And if you haven't done that, you know what? It's not that complicated. You can do it in your seat right now. Just call out to him in the sincerity of your heart and say, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you right now. I'm, I'm straight off the path and I'm saying yes to you right now in every way take all of me and if that's you and you say that in your seat today you're welcome at this table but if that's not you and you're either not interested in Jesus or you're still thinking it's okay we're glad you're here this is a good place for you to be and I would just encourage you to stay in your seat and ponder Think about what we've talked about today and maybe consider talking to God. Say, God, will you show me if you're real? Will you help me see Jesus if that's, if, if that's really the answer to my problems? The way that we practice communion here is uh, we form two lines down the middle and the Fitches will... Um, hand you bread, and then uh, you'll just grab uh, one of the cups. We have wine or uh, juice. Please obey your conscience there. And then take them back to your seat, and, and we'll take them together. So if you just take a minute, spend some time praying, reflecting, thinking about these things, and then you're welcome to come to the table.